Hey, everybody, Matthew here. Just a couple words before we get to our show with Chris Beams from BISC. Very interesting stuff. We ended up chatting for over two hours, so we're going to break this one up into two episodes. So I won't summarize it. I don't particularly like podcasts that summarize everything they talk about during the podcast for the first 10 minutes. But uh, if I learned anything from this show, it's definitely there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to crypto and decentralization and DAOs and governance. I uh, certainly like the cut of Chris's jib. Hope you guys enjoy it. Two episodes coming up here uh, today and next week with Chris Beams. It is December 7th when we recorded this. Bitcoin price going crazy. Lots of fun. Thank you for listening. Like, subscribe, really appreciate it. And happy holidays to you. Okay, everyone, welcome, welcome to show 26 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia. My co-host, Fernando Ulrich from Brazil is out today, but uh, no worries, we have a great guest and I'm gonna introduce today our guest, Chris Beams. Chris is a developer and co-founder at BISC, formerly known as BitSquare, a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin and crypto exchange. BISC is a DAO, or at least as I understand, working towards being a DAO, a fully decentralized autonomous organization. An interesting concept, which I am sure we will get into. Chris, welcome to Crypto Voices. Thanks for having me. Really great to have you, and it was great meeting you uh, in Riga at the Huddle Huddle conference uh, a couple weeks ago. I was actually just talking to Max, the organizer, today. He sends his greetings. Yeah, there's just so many great people to hang out with there. Uh, what were your thoughts about that that event? I, I had just come off of, uh, uh, what, a month or a month and a half before that was the conference in Prague, um, the Hackers Congress 2017 in, in Prague. And that was, I walked out of that just for sure that it was going to be head and shoulders, you know, like the best conference I'd ever done. And then <laughs> Riga comes, you know, like one month later, and uh, basically was, uh, you know, contending for for that title. Uh, what a great, what a great conference! Amazing lineup of people. They did such a great job organizing it. I mean, really, I'm not being uh, <laughs> paid to say this, but I was hugely impressed and had a great time. Yeah, sure, sure. Likewise, and I think uh, mentioned this on our last show uh, when we actually interviewed. Roger Veer with with many uh, dissenting opinions from many people at that conference, but uh, you know it's it seems to me that you know we're coming out of uh, of a hurricane of a couple years and and people are just sort of resetting and they wanted to, uh, you know Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin folks with similar ideals just wanted to uh, you know sort of sort of reset and 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 try to set the table for the future. So it, it was very interesting. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into a lot of this uh, even more during our interview. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, go ahead and talk about yourself, talk about BISC. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into crypto and eventually uh, that led you to BISC. Yeah, so I've been a, a developer, a software engineer, whatever people like to call it, for a long time, going on 20 years, 18 years at least, you know, doing it uh, professionally. And uh, for most of that time, uh, I've been in, in the Java world, in the JVM world, doing um, enterprise application development, and then, uh, and then for a bunch of years, uh, building uh, open source toolkits and libraries and frameworks uh, that help other people build enterprise application 
software, web apps, microservices, et cetera, that sort of thing. So like people who are you know, software developers in the Java world might know the Spring framework or the Gradle build system. Like these are uh, in their sphere. Those are like popular open source projects that are widely used. And so I worked with those teams and, and helped build those projects up. And that was like, you know, dream come true kind of work for me um, for, like I say, like going on, you know, eight or 10 years. Uh, but sometime around 20, 2012, maybe mid-2012, um, this, this Bitcoin thing came across my radar. And I think like, you know, like so very many, it's, it's, it, it's such a cliche story these days, but it's, it's because it's so true, right? That I fell down the rabbit hole, right? And I couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, uh, get my attention off of what was this increasingly uh, fascinating set of ideas and, you know, like real working technology. And so, you know, I bought my first Bitcoins at, I think, you know, $11 or something like that after a week of struggling to get an account at Mt. Gox. And, you know, again, like so many people's story, uh, it's, it's similar to that. But at some point, uh, it, it, you know, it just seemed like I, I really had to, to bite the bullet and, and do this full time. And I didn't have, you know, a, a startup that I was going to go work for or whatever, but I just wanted to, to spend as much time as I possibly could. Uh, focusing on Bitcoin and seeing where it might make sense for me to to contribute, um, and so so I left that that work that I had been doing, and uh, and that's when shortly thereafter I, I uh, stumbled into BISC, which was at the time known as as BitSquare uh, here in Vienna, where I live. Uh, the the other founder Manfred uh, of BitSquare had just put together a prototype. Uh, this would have been about what, uh, May or so uh, of 20, 2014? Yeah, so, so basically, basically it was a couple weeks after Mt. Gox collapsed uh, was when I met Manfred here in Vienna at a Bitcoin uh, uh, meetup. And he had just put together this prototype of what in his mind was the, the correct and proper solution uh, to avoid anything like Mt. Gox's in the future, right? We all knew that... Uh, centralized exchanges were anathema and, you know, the antithesis of the ideas of Bitcoin, right? Be your own bank. Well, probably shouldn't put your, your, your private keys and your coins in somebody else's hands, right? A custodial exchange like Knockox was always a bad idea and people knew it, but we just didn't have any other, any other proper solutions, right? So, so BISC, or again, then BitSquare, was really born of this idea, what if we built an exchange it really worked like Bitcoin works. It was a kind of Bitcoin native exchange, if you will, something that's properly decentralized, peer-to-peer, security-focused, right? Your coins never leave your hands. And if they do, they're in multi-sig escrow, right, on the blockchain, no third parties to trust, private uh, all the way down, right? Um, you know, that critical moment of protecting uh, privacy, uh, is, is exchange transactions, getting in and out of Bitcoin is where uh, you could say privacy matters most in some ways. Uh, and, of, and of course, we wanted it to be something that can be censorship resistant as well, right? And, you know, uh, decentralized or even properly distributed networks like, like this, where everybody's running a, a client, tend to be harder to shut down than centralized uh, efforts. So you know, we can get more into the you know, origin of that and the, and the purpose and motivation behind BISC, but, uh, but that's a bit of the, the origin story for me, right? And that was, again, back in uh, whenever it was. I'm missing the dates here, but 2014 or so. Uh, 
almost four years ago anyway. And, uh, and you know, now here we are about four years later and uh, BISC is up and running and we can talk all about the, the stats and so on later if you like. Our, our listeners probably, if they've been around Bitcoin for a while, they've heard of BitSquare, but I understand that you've changed the name relatively recently uh, to BISC. Can you explain why you did that? Yeah, we, we, we changed the name, I think, last April or so. Uh, now, or April of this year, 2017. So it's been a f- it's been some months anyway. But uh, yeah, the reason the reason that we changed it was, uh, or it's actually useful to just talk about why did we name it BitSquare in the first place, and then can talk about why we changed the name. Uh, the name the name was uh, came from the idea uh, of Satoshi squares, um, which uh, never became uh, super popular, but they were a great idea and 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 happened uh, certainly a number of times. Uh, Satoshi squares were just this idea that like hey, you want to buy Bitcoin, you want to sell Bitcoin, let's all convene somewhere, let's assemble somewhere into a so-called Satoshi Square, and we can just call out offers, right, and just do person-to-person, in-person, right, sort of physical meat space Bitcoin trading. And, uh, and we really like that idea, right? We like the spirit of that, of that uh, uh, you know, just, just individual people getting together to trade. And, of course, the idea was, what if we could take that same kind of... Uh, ethos, right, uh, and, and, and do it online at a distance, right, you know, over the internet and so on. And so that's where BitSquare was born. Um, uh, and uh, then we changed the name um, because a, a, a certain uh, uh, financial services and payment processing company uh, uh, asked us not to use the word square in, in our name uh, because it might overlap with their name. You might be able to guess which company that is. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, we kindly uh, complied and, and, and changed our name, basically shortening it, right, from BitSquare down to B-I-S-Q, so almost like an abbreviation of it. And so today we're BISC, but that's where the name originally came from. Oh, it's, a, it's sort of a catchy uh, shortening of it, but... Uh... It actually works out uh, better in some ways, I think. You know, it's very Googleable, and it's also, uh, it has that... It's just strange enough, right, to, to, to maybe stick. Yeah, indeed. In any event, it was, uh, it was nice of you guys to do that. <laughs> but, um, but that leads me to my next question. This is sort of a, a broader one, and, and you can uh, dig into the details of your own organization or, or decentralized organization. But uh, could you explain uh, your understanding of the concept behind open source and decentralized development? Uh, you know, Fernando and I, we're, we're not developers, uh, more sort of business types. So these sorts of decentralized systems, decentralized governance, open source, it is very confusing for traditional sort of business people to understand why you even do that, uh, why uh, that's a good thing to do, you know, if you don't have a profit incentive and you're, you're just trying to, at the end of the day, uh, provide a good service at a, at a good profit, uh, it, it does seem counterintuitive. So it's a big sort of question, but you know, even when you're talking to something about something like renaming from BitSquare to BISC, and you know, just how how team meetings go and things. I mean, what's what's your idea of the concept behind open source, decentralized uh, development? Yeah, that's certainly a big uh, a big question, but it's one that I really love uh, thinking about and talking about. You know, so sort of what is open source, why open source, you started to talk about uh, business models and making money and not making money, right? That's, that's something that's always been uh, close to my heart over the last uh, many years because I've been working in open source, again, before, uh, before doing anything with Bitcoin or crypto, right? I've been working in open source for a long time. 
It's always been a challenge uh, to figure out how to, how to make money out of these efforts. So, so I'll, I'll get into that and how that kind of ties back into what we're doing with, with BISC. But just to, to answer kind of those biggest, most general questions first, you know, what is open source? Why open source? Uh, and so on, and, and then into decentralization. Well, you know, of course, most people probably know when we say open source, we mean the source code for whatever program or application or system or network you're interacting with is publicly and freely available, right? So, you know, typically these days it's on GitHub, but it could be anywhere on the internet. And it's free for everybody to examine and, 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 and even modify for themselves, uh, uh, at least potentially. Um, there's, there are many reasons that that culture evolved uh, over the years, and it's an old one, right? You know, this is going back uh, decades at this point before it was even called open source, right? You know, there's a freeware and shareware and all kinds of different uh, communities um, that came together over time. But, but the, this idea of open source software and, uh, and the idea of free software, right? Those two, two related uh, camps uh, around what we usually call open source software uh, you know, we're sort of really congealing and coming together in the 90s and 2000s. And, you know, with the, in the sort of 2000s, uh, early 2000s, we started really to see the rise of open source software in the, in the enterprise particularly. Um, you know, enterprises were going from, you know, using um, uh, closed source proprietary systems and stacks of software to using uh, free and open source software, uh, pr principally because uh, developers, uh, indeed like myself, around the time, we're looking at the options and saying, it's just way better to use open source toolkits and frameworks and, uh, and, and so on because we can see the code, because we can help improve it, because we know it's been audited and understood and examined by thousands of eyes and users uh, and, and developers' minds, as opposed to you know, however bright, uh, say, Microsoft may have been, right, or just name any other proprietary closed source you know, software vendor, no matter how great they are, they could never be as, as great as the entirety of all possible software developers, right? As, as the entire network uh, of people who could look at and contribute to open source. So this is, this is a trend that we, that we always see. Uh, you know, we were in Riga last week or two weeks ago with, with Andreas, right, Antonopoulos, and he's, you know, very eloquent at talking about the tendency uh, indeed, really, the inevitability, it seems, for open, decentralized networks uh, to eventually overtake whatever their closed and proprietary, uh, you know, equivalents or alternatives may have, may have been. And because of the nature of these things, because of the economics of these things, it tends to be that closed proprietary solutions get to market quicker because a company's backing them, they're funded, they can, they can uh, get it out the door, right? And market it and, 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 and you know, sort of get penetration, right? In the meantime, uh, with, with no big monetary incentive uh, powering it, usually, uh, you know, hackers and, and geeks and so on uh, just start building better things, slowly, chaotically, uh, without a lot of direction, but given enough time, things usually come together in a way that's, uh, that, that overtake these proprietary alternatives. So whether we're talking about the internet itself and all of the closed options that, you know, tried to be their own private internets, and obviously we all live on 
the internet today, the open, decentralized, not owned by anybody version of the internet, right? Um, same thing with, with Bitcoin, right? Uh, you know, there's an open, decentralized, public, da 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 you know, solution for, for digital cash that's, you know, in the process as we speak of taking over all of its alternatives, right? This thrilling ride that we're all watching. Same thing, you know, so that's the story of open source, right? It's, it's, it's largely done the same thing. Uh, over these over over the years, and so today, if you're building, um, you know, any kind of enterprise software application, uh, it's almost certainly being built with a ton of its components, if not all of its components, uh, in open source or with open source, um, you know, uh, tools. Like I said, that's um, and 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 like I mentioned, that's where I found myself over the last year was building those tools, and that was always a challenge uh, because. You know, I'd be working with the team. We have great technology, great ideas, lots and lots of users of whatever it is that we're building, say a framework for building web applications. That's what uh, Spring or the Spring framework was and is. It's something that I worked on for a long time. So we've got all these users. We've got a brilliant group of people building this, uh, this open source software, this open source toolkit. But how to make money, right? So we would do consulting, we would do, you know, professional services delivery. Some other companies would create uh, documentation and sell the documentation, right? You know, we would do training, we'd do consulting, et cetera. There are different, different models, but those models have always been kind of adjuncts to the product itself. It was never monetizing the product itself, but it was monetizing something around it, right? And it tends to be the case that those service-based models um, training and consulting being, being classic, they just don't scale very well. It's like you can make money, but you can't make very much, <laughs> right? Because uh, you've got to you know, ship human beings and planes around the world to deliver those services and so on. That's what, also what I did for a long time was being a consultant. Um, what we see now, and I'm kind of going to jump ahead for a second. We can maybe uh, backtrack and, and get there, right? But, you know, uh, to connect the dots of why we're having this conversation in BISC and the BISC DAO or you know decentralized autonomous organization, what we what we're seeing now is is uh, for the first time I think uh, the ability to directly monetize uh, open source efforts, uh, and this is not like generally applicable stuff at all yet. There are no best practices. Uh, nobody really knows what they're doing or how to do this. There's just a handful of uh, attempts out there. But with the advent of, um, of cryptocurrency, basically, with the advent of Bitcoin, we now have something that we never had before as uh, open source developers and uh, teams of, of, of open source developers working together. We have the ability to incentivize each other to do to, to work together at a distance with with very little uh, trust, right? Certainly, without the need to establish a, 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 a company to incorporate to have uh, all manner of uh, you know bureaucracy and paperwork and so on. If what you're working on somehow has an incentive model. And we can talk about how BISC does this, right? BISC is a decentralized exchange and people pay trading fees, right? So real users use this network, use this software, and they pay money to do it because it's valuable. They pay that money in Bitcoin. 
Well, all of a sudden, it's now possible, at least in principle, to route that money that they're paying to the people who are, who are building that network, who are building that software, who are building BISC. Uh, and that's exactly what we're up to. And it just hasn't been possible before. That money always would have had to previously end up in a bank account somewhere, be held in custody by somebody who has signing rights to that bank account, be distributed or dispersed in, in some sort of employment arrangement or contracting arrangement uh, that interacts with a whole bunch of existing uh, legal structures that, that create massive barriers, especially across borders, right? Now, for the first time, we have the ability to, with much greater ease, much less friction, collaborate, work together, and incentivize each other to work together. That's a really great answer. I think, um, you know, Fernando and I are both interested in these really sort of big picture ideas. And um, it's just, like you said, it's it's so intriguing that these sorts of systems just for the first time, and uh, like you said, they've been around before cryptocurrency, but largely because of cryptocurrency, they can they can just flourish in a in a in a in a very yet unseen way, and it's it's just fantastic. But um, one more question, actually, before we get to uh, more of how Bisc works and how your DAO works, um, I don't think I've actually actually ever asked this question to a guest, but it's it's sort of something I was always pondering with even with Bitcoin Core or whatever. Sort of a knock on wood question: if 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 the whole, let's say the whole decentralized team is at a conference together in one way, shape, or form, you all catch the flu or become highly incapacitated. What, what happens then uh, as far as like who has access to the GitHub, who has access to everything? Like literally every developer that's working on it, even in every country somehow becomes incapacitated. What is that next step uh, with an open source project such as BISC? Is it just freely available on the GitHub that anybody can pull it and copy it and, and continue on? Yeah, uh, uh, this probably, I'll answer it in a couple of parts, right? If this, if this were a sort of, uh, just another open source project, right? You know, you go to GitHub, kind of just randomly click on a project. If everybody got run over by a bus that works on that, including the people who have, you know, commit rights uh, to the to that GitHub repository, say, the ones who are sort of in control of the code, uh, tragic as that may be, for for most kinds of open source projects, yeah, the code is there, so somebody else could pick it up you know, uh, copy it into a repository they do control and, and, and start coding away, right? And if something is really popular and really in, in, in uh, heavy usage by a lot of people in the world, there's every reason to believe that would happen. Uh, and, you know, a good example here would be uh, Linux, right? So the Linux kernel, the Linux source tree, you know, uh, Linus Torvald still, still has, you know, kind of you know, master commit rights over that thing. Well, if he got taken out tomorrow... Um, there would just be plenty of people who are competent and could and, and could pick that up, right? So, th- so that's kind of a, a sort of more classic uh, I- example with a fairly simple answer. Uh, when it comes to what we're doing with BISC, uh, where it's not just an open source project, like here's some static code sitting in a GitHub repository, it's it's also actually an a, an up and running, uh, living, breathing, operating network, right? where uh, all the different nodes on that network are composed of principally people running the BISC clients, you know, this desktop application that they download, run on their machine, and that connects to the peer-to-peer network, very, just very much like Bitcoin itself does, right? When you're running, say, Bitcoin Core or whatever, whatever kind of wallet. So you know, most of that network is people running BISC nodes. But there are other nodes on the network that are uh, uh, you know, playing roles like 
you know, pumping price information into the network. You know, we have to get that exogenously from the network. We have to go ask price providers like Bitcoin Average and, and, and so on. So we run that through some kind of, you know, pr proxies that we run basically. There are little nodes and we run several of them and there's all kinds of, you know, redundancy and things like that. There's our seed nodes that play a similar role as seed nodes in the Bitcoin network. And, and there's a number of these other kind of special purpose nodes. So the reason that I'm, that I'm making this distinction here is it's, it's one thing for all of the uh, contributors to BISC to have something tragic happen to them because <laughs> they all happen to be at a conference, which a bunch of us are going to be at a conference uh, 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 later this month. We're going to be at Chaos uh, in, in Germany, right? So this is like not even theoretical. <laughs> um, but, but if that happened, right, and, and suddenly we were all incapacitated or what have you, uh, it's not just a matter of copying the code base anymore, right? It's like, hey, there was actually running software at all these different nodes, right? All the people that run Bitcoin nodes for BISC and all the people that run seed nodes and price nodes and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, those are down, right? So, so that's, a, that's another level of concern. And that's why I think a truly uh, resilient or truly robust uh, DAO, uh, it, it, you, know, you can't call it that. You can't call it truly robust if uh, there's only one person who has control over uh, say these these critical kinds of nodes, or you know, let's take it outside of the peer-to-peer -peer network. Let's talk about say control over our DNS, right? You know, we do have a website. We do have uh, bisc.network, right? Who has who has control over that? If this is really a DAO, and there's really not kind of some secret, you know, uh, 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 super privileged group of people who actually have all the keys to everything, and that is the goal, right? That is where we're headed with this. Then redundancy really matters. Right, you probably don't want to have any roles like owner of the DNS, you know, access to DNS, say, where there's just one person. Um, it's very timely that you ask this question uh, because our forum went down today. Right, we have a, a discourse forum at uh, bisc.community. That's the URL. It went down a few hours ago, and it's and I think as we speak, it might still be down uh, because there's one person who has the keys to that. I don't, as a as a co-founder. Our other co-founder doesn't. We fully and properly decentralized ownership of the forum to a member of our community, a contributor. Uh, but we weren't able to get a hold of him for a few hours. So we're right in the middle of learning, right? Okay, how much is enough decentralization? How much redundancy is necessary, right? So in this case, it may not be fully and properly enough. You need to still work more. Exactly. And we're certain, you know, we say... Um, you know, I'll often say something like, you know, BISC is a, is a fully decentralized, um, uh, you know, crypto, fiat, exchange, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's certainly true at the technical level, right? You know, BISC is a highly decentralized, even like I said before, like even fully distributed uh, network in terms of the way that it works. But what's not decentralized fully by any means is the is the human side of it the management the funding the governance the decision making and and furthermore um i i would i would assert that no such project could ever come out of the gate fully decentralized in those aspects that's always a process because it begins with one or two people and then it has to become decentralized as more and more people get involved and you have to have structures for that and so on. And this is, again, all this stuff that's brand new. As it did with Bitcoin itself. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that just takes time. And just like with Bitcoin itself, 
right? Uh, it, I'm sure many listeners will will remember, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, and the, and the and the blockade, the payment blockade that the U.S. imposed, and you know, Mastercard and Visa and PayPal couldn't send uh, payments anymore to WikiLeaks in 2010. And of course, the whole you know nascent bit, you know, or many in the nascent Bitcoin community said, "Accept Bitcoin, accept Bitcoin." And you know, Satoshi himself said, "Please do not. <laughs> yeah. We're not ready. We're not ready." And why? Because yeah, not only the technology had ways to go, but also the community, right? And 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 the degree to which all of the things in in, in Bitcoin were robustly decentralized and could withstand that kind of attention. It wasn't there yet in 2010. It certainly is now, thank goodness, right? BISC is somewhere in the middle of that kind of process. We've been up and running for, you know, well over a year and a half now, uh, live and, you know, trading and stuff like that. So, hey, it works uh, for sure. But if we all of a sudden got, say, all of uh, Coinbase and Kraken's overflow tomorrow that they can't service right now because they're overwhelmed, right? Well, we would be totally overwhelmed as well. You know, I mean, there would be a, all kinds of things that would that would go wrong. So it's important to grow in a kind of uh, you know uh, a steady, well-paced way. And so, so far, so good. We've actually been doing that. But that process of decentralization is just step by step by step. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, AugurRep, and many more. This is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit Shapeshift.io and choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. I, I never sort of actually thought about it that way, but yeah, it's just baby steps. And, you know, the Bitcoin network today is very different than the Bitcoin network then. And I'm sure that the BISC network in a couple of years will be much more robust and distributed than, uh, than, it, than it is today. But um, let's go from, from the clouds, maybe right down into the weeds, because I want to uh, make sure our, our listeners know exactly what we're talking about here. Um, I recently downloaded the client, tried it out. I, I am relatively experienced crypto person, speculator, not not an active trader, but to, but I have not used your platform before. I found it very intuitive, uh, very interesting. But uh, let's just walk through it before we do anything else. What what is Bisc doing? Uh, what are what are the features that it has that differentiates itself from say? Kraken or Coinbase uh, or MTGOX. Yeah, yeah. So, so what BISC is, is you can say it's an exchange, right? It's a place that you can exchange Bitcoin for national currencies, right? Or fiat currencies, US dollars, euros, yen, all of that. Uh, you can also exchange uh, Bitcoin for other cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, that's um, important functionality, and we do a lot of those trades, but that's not really the that's not really the core of the project the core of the project it's 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 raison d'etre right the reason that we built it was to have one rock solid on-ramp and off-ramp from crypto right into and out of crypto from the fiat world uh that was or that is right secure private 
and censorship resistant, like I mentioned before. And it's just worth kind of quickly defining each one of those um, because they're just all, they're just what BISC is about. This is how we differentiate ourselves. And this is why, you know, at, currently, you know, we, we believe we're the, the only uh, uh, decentralized crypto fiat exchange out there that, that sort of checks these boxes that, that are so important to us and that we think are so important to many users and ought to be important to a whole lot more users, right? Which is security. What does that mean? That means the safety of your funds, right? So if you don't, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right, uh, is, 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 is the adage. If you don't have your private keys, it's not your Bitcoin. When you put your Bitcoin on a centralized exchange, be it Coinbase or Mt. Gox or whatever it was, that's a massive, massive risk, uh, and 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 the beatings have and will continue, <laughs> right? Uh, there's just you know mega, multi-million, multi-hundred million dollar hacks every single year, multiple times every year, most years. Uh, it's just too much of a honeypot. Where there's that much value, it's going to get stolen, right? There's just billions of reasons why you would figure out how to hack those servers, right? So so the lesson is just stop. Don't do that. You're doing it wrong <laughs> when you put your money on, on, on a centralized exchange server. Even, you know, even when it's just for a few minutes, even you say, I'm going to get it in and get it out. When thousands of other people are doing that at the same time, there's always a huge reason and a huge risk for, for uh, hackers to find a way to get in and inside jobs and so on, right? So... The solution is stop doing it that way, and of course you have to you have to have another way to do it. And we can talk about how BISC does that in a moment. But that's sort of uh, you know reason for existing. Number one is that is that for an exchange network, for a system of exchange in Bitcoin to work like Bitcoin works, if Bitcoin is about being your own bank. Right? BISC is about being your own exchange. Uh, you keep control of your funds. Uh, all the time, and when and we're in the middle of a trade, your funds are locked away in a multi-sig uh, escrow, which we could talk about in more detail. Um, but those are all things that, that that do right by Bitcoin's ideas and ideals. Uh, you know the way that we design that. We hope others can be the judge, but that's why we designed it that way. Uh, privacy is you know often those two things get kind of conflated and confused, but they really are very very distinct, right? If security is about the safety of your funds, privacy is about control over your information your personal data, right? And just like you don't have the keys, you don't have the Bitcoin, right? Well, if you don't have control over your personal information, somebody else does. And it happens to be the case that these centralized exchanges, usually not for reasons of their own, uh, but for reasons of the, of the regulatory regimes they, they're, they're domiciled under, uh, particularly in the US, right? Those centralized exchanges are forced by law to collect personally identifying information at the time of account creation and setup. So you send a passport, you send you know, uh, your electricity bill or whatever it is. In any case, you've got sensitive personal information on file, uh, on mass with other people, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of other people at, at, at an exchange like Coinbase. Well, that's just as much a honeypot for different reasons, right, as the pooling of Bitcoin private keys are. So one is just clearly take the money and run. The other one is take the identities and run, take the data and run. So whether it's identity thieves or governments or what have you, there's, there's, there's bad actors that want to come after that information and do come after that information. This is not theoretical, right? We can just look at the, 
the, the John Doe summons from the IRS that's been going on over the last uh, year or so, and that just came to a conclusion this month uh, with Coinbase, right? You know, we have 14,300 people that just got doxxed by the U.S. government uh, for, you know, for trading on, ex- on an exchange, right? And that, and that really speaks to the, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of asymmetry uh, uh, with, with uh, thinking about privacy that dealing with privacy, protecting your privacy in the moment when your privacy is sort of the moment that it's at risk, you know, like sending your passport to Coinbase because you want to set up an account or whatever it may be, it never feels important to you in that moment, right? If it becomes important, it's probably only important months down the road when something happens, something changes, some rule, law, regulation changes, or when somebody decides they want to steal that information from you, right? So, so that's, that's, a, that's a very, very sticky problem, and it's why... It's a kind of duty, I think, for people who understand this stuff, right? Especially software developers working in, in, in the crypto space that understand the implications of, of, of privacy. I actually think it's our duty to make things private by default. Uh, all the time, always, and everywhere you go. Make it easy and make it the, basically the only thing to be private. Unless and until you, the user, decide to opt out of privacy, Right? And say, okay, I'm fine. I'm going to put my public name on this and so on. Well, of course that's your right because you should control your data. Right? That's the whole privacy principle there. This is about the control of data. It's not about having nothing to hide. It's about control over your information. Uh, so that's, why we, that's the second reason that we built BISC and why we built it the way we built it was to be private by default. And if you look at the way that BISC is uh, you know, d- designed and built, uh, the foundation of that privacy is that, is that uh, BISC runs on top of the Tor network. So every BISC node, every BISC client uh, on, on users' desktops around the world is a Tor-hidden service, right, with all of the uh, extraordinary uh, privacy protections that, that hidden services uh, afford to, uh, to people. It's a, it's a superpower. It's amazing that, that, that hidden services work and work the way they do. And BISC just makes all of that stuff work out of the box and you never have to think about it, right? Um, then there's the protocol itself, right? You know, how we protect you know, users' privacy uh, through, the, through, through our own trading protocol and, you know, how messages are encrypted. Even on top of, core, on top of Tor, of course, we're encrypting every message, uh, you know, between traders. It was truly peer-to-peer trading on, on BISC. So... Uh, this is this is something that uh, uh, really distinguishes BISC from uh, uh, typical exchanges. Usually, when you're on when you're on a centralized exchange, and this isn't just in crypto, right? This is like in the whole sort of larger financial world. Uh, usually, when you're trading, you never really have any sort of awareness of a particular counterparty on the other side, your whose whose stuff you're buying or selling uh, to, right? There's, there's the system in the middle. There's, a, there's an automatic order matching managed by a, a third-party platform in the middle that can kind of slice and dice up uh, uh, you know, offers and trades and so on such that you, whatever it is that you want to buy or sell can get, can get settled and handled uh, instantaneously, basically. But that might involve uh, you know, the, 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 the funds or assets or whatever of uh, dozens of people uh, to settle one trade on, again, typical platforms. On BISC, it's much, much, much simpler. Uh, there's just individual people putting offers to buy Bitcoin and offers to sell Bitcoin. Offers to buy Bitcoin for dollars, offers to sell Bitcoin for euros, whatever it may be. 
Uh, and when you're browsing through BISC's uh, offer book, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing individual people's offers to buy and sell. And you're saying, oh, that one looks good to me. I like the price. I like the amount that they're saying that they want to sell. I'll take it, right? And if you don't see anything like that, then you would create your own offer uh, to buy or sell Bitcoin as you, as you choose. Uh, and then somebody sees yours and says they, they like it and they take it, right? And when that offer is taken, uh, the communication about that offer and the process of settling that trade, which we can get into if you like, that all happens peer-to-peer. It's really just a communication between those two counterparties. So, so we're decentralized in our structure, but we're also truly peer-to-peer in how, in how uh, uh, you know, traders communicate and, and, and settle trades with each other. So uh, that's security and privacy, right? Just kind of taking this overview of what this is and why we built it. Uh, and then the third thing is censorship resistance, right? That, you know, we're at this early stage in, in, in all of this crypto stuff. And every day, it seems, certainly every week, there's a new headline about this government is regulating or restricting or banning or what have you, uh, Bitcoin or exchanges or, you know, China was the biggest stuff in the headlines this year. But, it, but really, it's it, almost every day you see some sort of headline about this. Uh, and, you know, thank goodness that Bitcoin itself uh, was designed the way it was designed, built the way it was built, because it was built from the get-go to be censorship resistant, right? That's that's the that's the heart of this cypherpunk movement, you know, that gave rise to Bitcoin. Uh, now going back uh, nearly four decades of thinking and experimentation and trial and error and so many brilliant minds and ideas trying to make systems that can exhibit the sort of resistance to censorship that Bitcoin can and does every single day do, right? We, we now know it's possible. We know something about how to build those systems. We're still learning a lot. But the one thing we know is that we do, in fact, need to build them that way. If we don't, they will get shut down. If that which can be shut down and is some kind of threat will be shut down, right? So you have to make sure it cannot be shut down. And that's an extremely high bar to clear. Uh, and, you know, uh, BISC holds that that high aspiration that's absolutely the target we're moving toward that's why it's so important that this this phase we're in now with with becoming a dao and becoming a truly resilient resistant dao it that's that's the censorship resistant part we've got the decentralization part we've got the security we've got the privacy bisc works on all those fronts but what it's not ready for yet is an existential threat, right? You know, some sort of legal challenge or something like that. We're still very much in the process of distributing these responsibilities to a degree that there's sort of no one person or person that you can just go chop the head off of and say, bisque is done, right? So that, that was quite a long answer, but, uh, but, I, but I, hope it, I, I hope it hits uh, the reasons why, at least. And, and maybe there's some stuff you want to talk about the what is it, but I'll, I'll pause for a second. Yeah, well, it certainly hits uh, all the right notes, I think, for uh, many of our listeners and obviously myself. I mean, just people that are classically liberally oriented, uh, you know, and fans of economic freedom and free trade. I mean, these are all the right notes. I mean, incredibly secure, incredibly private and censorship resistant and basically having a limit order by default that you know mm-hmm. cannot be changed, cannot be stopped. It is what it is. If you put that limit order in, that's going to be what everybody sees 100% and 
it can be the market's choice or your counterparty's choice to fill it or not. Yeah, incredibly uh, strong, um, strong and important features. Uh, before we do get even further into the what and how that works, I think this goes back to, again, the development of the DAO. And I, and I, I just want to maybe um, to clarify where you guys are in that process. So are you a DAO at this point or, or not? Yeah, yeah, we, we say so, right? And again, this is all such new stuff that like, okay, well, whose definition are you talking about, right? Um, you know, it, 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 we'll, see, we'll see what the, the consensus about, you know, what is a fully qualified, uh, fully operational DAO. We won't know that for years at least, right? It's like imagine what was happening uh, around the time of the first corporations being formed, uh, you know, three, four hundred years ago. And the ideas of you know stocks and and, and so on. These were all you know uh, new new ideas and probably very very confusing and nobody understood them and people had different definitions of them. Oh, we're you know we're we're, we're in the process of you know collectively creating a new kind of economic entity here, uh, you know where the corporation was this extraordinarily powerful concept uh, that, that that you know unlocked so many new levels of um, productivity specialization. Uh, and so on and so forth. Now, now I think we're in the you know we're witnessing, and I think this is you know maybe even some kind of you know Cambrian explosion going to happen, right? But we're witnessing a new kind of entity uh, coming online that says, okay, we're we're not a corporation, right? We're an organization. You know, pe- people have to work together, right, uh, in, in order to uh, uh, have any sort of productivity and in order to to unlock new levels of economic growth. People have to work together and cooperate. That's the way it works. But do we have to do that inside of a inside of a, 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 a legal fiction, right? Do we have to do that inside of a legal person, an incorporation uh, uh, that, that, that becomes a legal entity inside of uh, some particular uh, jurisdiction? Uh, is that is that necessary anymore? I'm not saying that's going to go away tomorrow at all, right? But maybe there's a new way now. Now that we have global networks, not only of data flowing over the planet, but now of value flowing over the planet, maybe we can find new ways to organize ourselves. Um, so we'll see what the definition is, but our definition uh, is, uh, uh, you know, so by our definition, yes, we're a DAO, that makes it easy, right? But uh, by our definition, it's, you know, are we, are we step-by-step operating toward a, a plan or along a plan that so far as we can see will arrive at uh, a fully decentralized, fully autonomous organization of individuals working together to build, operate, and maintain this network. Uh, that's what matters, right? So, so uh, whatever the particular definition of a DAO is doesn't really matter. What matters is, is it actually decentralized so that nobody's really in control, therefore censorship resistant, right? Is it actually autonomous, Right, which is again, it's not in a command and control sort of situation, but everybody has their their uh, you know access rights to whatever it is that they that they manage. They're making their own decisions uh, and so on. Uh, and of course, is it an organization? Well, are people collaborating together? Uh, that's we set out a plan to to achieve that goal. Um, uh, we, we published a paper on it a couple of months ago. Uh, we, we we call this. This, this moment that we're in or this plan, uh, phase zero of the BISC DAO, 
uh, and people can find this paper at our at our website. It's 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 called Phase Zero: A Plan for Bootstrapping the Bisque Dow. Yeah, we'll link we'll link to it as well in the show notes. Yeah, great, thank you. And I, and I gave I gave a talk about that as well at, at the conference in Prague that I was mentioning. That's going to be online soon. So you know, I definitely recommend people watch it if they're interested in DAOs, or indeed if they're interested in um, perhaps uh, collaborating with us. Right? It's uh, that's the kind of source material. Uh, but that that plan is called phase zero because we had a, a multi-phase plan for rolling out the DAO to begin with. Uh, uh, there was sort of phases one through five. And what we did was put phase zero in there where we took an even more conservative approach than we had planned to before, wherein we, we've basically launched our, our, this DAO and we've launched a token. I can get into what this token is uh, very briefly here. Yeah, please. Uh, but we've done everything on testnet. Right, and so for anybody not familiar, right, you know, Bitcoin has. Uh, when we talk about Bitcoin and people moving around valuable Bitcoin transactions, those are happening on what Bitcoin developers call Bitcoin mainnet, right, the real Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, there's also Bitcoin's testnet, uh, which is every bit exactly the same as Bitcoin, but it's a test network. It's not the real blockchain, and the Bitcoins there are valueless because nobody believes they have value, right? Um, but that's a great place to do testing and development and to try something out. And that's, that's where we are right now, is, is, is we're operating our DAO and we're operating the token, which we call BSQ, uh, just like the name BISC, but like the ticker symbol would be BSQ, uh, is, uh, it, it exists only on Bitcoin testnet. So I, I'll have to explain a couple of things here to, to, to make any to make any sense of that. The first thing is uh, the token, right? So let, let's let's talk about that because it's really the heart. Uh, it's 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 the it's the it's the lifeblood of this of this DAO. And I haven't I, I I would raise an eyebrow if I heard about a DAO that didn't have some kind of token involved. That token might even be Bitcoin itself, right? Bitcoin itself is uh, by many uh, standards the original DAO. Right, Bitcoin itself has this built-in incentive, uh, you know, uh, mechanism for keeping the network running and secure. Right. Right. So Bitcoin pays all the people who maintain the security of that network and so on. It pays those people in Bitcoin. Right. But uh, I don't see how a DAO can be a DAO without incentive uh, structures and and some sort of token, even if that token is Bitcoin itself. For our purposes, uh, as much as we would have liked to. Uh, we couldn't see our way through to have Bitcoin itself be the token of our realm, right? To be the token that would power this this organization. Can you explain briefly why why you came to that conclusion? So yeah, so for reasons that I'll explain just after saying this, what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to jump all the way over to you know what's quite common these days with creating, say, Ethereum-based tokens, right? ERC twenty tokens. Uh, which is very, very common in the ICO world, right? As probably most listeners know, yep. um, that that was a bridge too far. There's many reasons we don't want to do that. I won't necessarily get into them all here. But what we wanted to do was to be as close to Bitcoin as we possibly can, even use Bitcoin if we possibly could. And we couldn't see our way through to doing that. So what we created is a colored coin. Um, people might uh, be to more or less degrees familiar with what a colored coin is, but a colored coin is fundamentally Bitcoin. Uh, a colored coin that's based on Bitcoin would be fundamentally backed by Bitcoin, uh, but with additional rules, uh, additional validation rules on top of Bitcoin's own validation rules that say what a valid 
colored coin is, right? So our, our colored coin is called BSQ. So BSQ has additional validation rules that tell the network uh, whether or not a, a BSQ transaction is a valid transaction and so on. I realize that's a bit abstract, so let's talk about it concretely. What does BSQ do? What does it need to do that it, that it needed to have these extra uh, capabilities and extra rules and so on? So inside of the BISC DAO, there's, uh, there's five functions or utilities for BSQ. And the first one is, uh, is being compensated in it. Right? So if you, if you do any kind of work uh, that adds value to BISC, and this is really the broadest uh, uh, you know, uh, umbrella that you can, you can span here, D development, obviously, if you're coding, writing code for BISC, that's adding value. Uh, but also if you're you know, on Reddit and you're, and you're helping answering questions and, 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 and sharing about new releases or you're, you're active on Twitter or... Uh, or you manage our DNS, like I mentioned before, or you operate one of our seed nodes, or any and all of the things that are necessary to the operation of, of the network and that add value to the network. Those are all what we would consider um, uh, 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 contributions from contributors that can be compensated, right? And how we compensate is with BSQ. So sort of put a pin in that and just imagine for a moment, I can do work for the BISDAO, I'm not employed, I sign no contracts, nothing like that. But if I do work, I can submit a compensation request and I can say, hey, everybody, here's some stuff I did. I'd like to be paid so many BSQ. What do you all think? And that takes us to the second function or second utility of the BISC token inside of the BISC DAO, which is voting. Uh, so if you're somebody who has BSQ already, we would call you a stakeholder and we can talk about uh, how people originally get BSQ in just a moment. I'll get to that. But if you have BSQ like you've been compensated before, right, then you have voting rights. And so it's not sort of one man, one vote, but it's one token, one vote. Uh, and so if you're somebody who's done a lot of work for the DAO and you've been compensated to the tune of hundreds of thousands of BSQ, you would have an outsized amount of voting power. And that's totally intentional because BISC is designed as a, the BISC DAO is designed as a meritocracy, right? So we think the best way to manage, if we have to make sort of voting style decisions, uh, which you, you know, in my mind, you always want to be very reluctant to introduce voting into a system, right? That, that just creates uh, strife. Voting is a process that, by definition, creates losers. Right. Um, so, so you don't want to do that if you can possibly avoid it. But if there are certain things you have to vote on then let the people who have added the most value over time, who have demonstrably stewarded this project to the success that it enjoys today, let them have the, 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 the weight in the, in the decision-making, right? Um, so, that's, so we have a, a, a sort of merit-weighted voting structure based on this DAO, or based on this token. Uh, and so people are monthly, stakeholders are monthly voting on compensation requests voting with their BSQ about who should get new BSQ in those compensation requests. We're actually right in the middle of, of our uh, voting on our October compensation requests right now. Right, uh, sorry, excuse me. We're in the middle of voting on our November compensation requests. You and I are having this conversation early December, right? And so we're just voting on last month's compensation requests as we speak. Uh, so this is kind of part of the evidence are we an operating DAO? Yes, because we're doing these things we say 
are part of the DAO. We submit requests and we vote on them every month. And that's that's an interesting point, actually, right there. Even um, I haven't thought about remuneration in uh, in hindsight, but the as I understand, then you have people that are doing the work, and then they would hope that they get approved to be paid the following month. Because uh, I'm a bit familiar with, for example, the Dash uh, Treasury system. I believe that they do it. It's a, it's a budget proposal for the following month. So whatever, they, if someone needs to tinker with the system a little bit, they make a proposal, get paid in Dash, and then they do it the next month. But this is actually people are doing the work and then they're trying to prove to the community the work was done and then they should get paid? Yes, yeah, so... so um and this is, you know, one of those things, right? You know, Dash is certainly one that you look at and go, okay, where are the where are the existing DAOs out there in the wild? Well, by any measure, Dash Dash's DAO is out there and running for sure, right? So, you know, how do they do it, right? You know, there and there are a few other ones that, that you can sort of point out, and they they at least seem to to have signs of life at the very least. But they're they're going to all do things really different ways because there's no there's no uh, uh, standards here yet, right? Or best sure. practices. Sure. Yeah. So for us, uh, it's it's just like you said that uh, people do work, whatever it may be, and after the fact, submit a compensation request, which, by the way, right, for people who are familiar, like the compensation requests at this level, uh, where we're at, they're, they're just GitHub issues, right? So people are putting in a GitHub issue saying, here's my compensation request for the month of November. Uh, here's a bunch of links to maybe other GitHub issues, other pull requests, uh, Reddit threads, you know, whatever it was that I did, here's some kind of evidence Right, and you can all evaluate it for yourselves. And here's the amount of BSQ that I'm asking for. And you know, you think about that. That looks like a that could be a setup. You know, like a for a for a fall. You know, somebody goes and does a whole bunch of work, uh, asks for too much, asks for too little. You know, gets gets voted down, feels dejected, uh, goes away, and never to return or something like that. Um, but but our our thesis here, right? You know, again, we're only a couple of months into the actual operation of this, but so far so good, is is that by structuring it this way, uh, we're creating a set of uh, social incentives, right? There's every reason uh, under this model, as we've designed it, there's every reason for somebody to be very, uh, let's say, pro-social, right? When they think about the work that they want to do, uh, just going out and doing a bunch of work. And then, and then asking to be compensated for it after the fact probably isn't going to go that well, right? Because like, people are like, well, why was that important? Or, oh, didn't you know we already did it this way over here? Or whatever. Right. So people are encouraged to show up in Slack, to show up on our mailing list, to show up in GitHub. You know, there's a variety of places where people can engage in a conversation with other contributors and say, would this be of value? Should I do it? Should I do it this way, that way? And then even to take it a step further and say, well, like, what do you think this would be worth? You know, people know who the high-value stakeholders are in the network. You know, the co-founders have you know have a lot of voting power still. Uh, you could just ask, right? Like, think this is worth a thousand, two thousand. You know, and and it's that it's that very human process, right? So it's also it's really we want to foster a certain kind of culture, right, where uh, people just show up and autonomously act in ways that are very cooperative, pro-social, and actually work out over time. Um, so it's very much an experiment. Again, so far so good uh, for the most part, I think. But uh, but yeah, that's that's our compensation and voting model. And those are uh, two of five functions for the token, right? So to to quickly touch on the other three functions, the third function is uh, is spending, 
BSQ. So, so we talk about earning it, voting it, but what can you spend BSQ on? Like what is BSQ sort of good for in the world? Well, we, we, have, we don't think anybody is going to care about BSQ outside of BISC, right? So this, this isn't a currency for people to go spend on coffee or something like that. Uh, what you spend BSQ on, if you so choose, is trading fees, right? So if you're a trader using BISC to buy and sell Bitcoin and so on, today you pay your trading fees in Bitcoin. Uh, and as we continue to roll out the DAO in this phased approach, uh, at, at a certain point in the future, we'll flip a switch that will allow people to spend their BSQ on trading fees instead of in lieu of Bitcoin. And there's an incentive to do that because uh, if you pay in BSQ, you pay a, a lower overall rate. You basically get a big fat discount. It's cheaper to trade on BISC if you pay your trading fees with BSQ. So there's an incentive for people, for traders, to at least for a short period of time acquire BSQ, even if they turn right around and just spend it, there's an incentive to acquire it, which takes us to the fourth function, which is trading, right? So we've got compensation, voting, spending it on trading fees, and of course, trading BSQ for other currencies. So if you wanted to acquire BSQ because you're a trader and you want cheaper fees, well, you'd maybe exchange some Bitcoin for BSQ. Maybe the other side of that trade is going to be a contributor, who's saying, I want to sell my BSQ for Bitcoin, or I want to sell my BSQ for dollars or euros because I have an electricity bill to pay. Right? So it's possible to trade it. And then the fifth function is bonding. So when we talk about decentralizing the, the whole you know, network of operating and maintaining and, and, and administering this, this, this project, uh, that means that certain roles are, are higher trust roles. Right? It's, it's not a high-trust role to just run a BISC node. Uh, there's no risk just running a BISC node, uh, uh, running a client. But there is risk involved for people who have the keys to our DNS. There's risk involved for people who are arbitrators uh, in, in the BISC network. Uh, there's, there's risk involved for people who run our seed nodes and price nodes. If, if they don't behave, if they behave badly, that causes damage to the network and damage potentially to users. So uh, what we do is we have people who take on those roles, put up a bond in BSQ. They're locking away that BSQ that they've earned, so they can't spend it, they can't trade it. Uh, but in return for putting up that bond in BSQ, they get this right, you know, which might be, say, privileges to the, you know, the keys to our GitHub organization or whatever role it is that they're performing. Uh, and, and they, of course, uh, are, are then able to put in compensation requests for performing that role, which might, in some cases, be a lot of compensation because they're doing a lot of work or what they're doing is very important or valuable. Uh, so without going into all more detail, that's the, the five functions of BSQ. And when you sort of read the, 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 the literature that we've put out about this, right, the paper that I mentioned before, you can see diagrams and so on that like really paint the picture of how this is intended, at least, to be a kind of closed-loop ecosystem uh, powering value getting generated and being pumped into the network by people contributing, doing work, coding, whatever it may be, and then people uh, uh, you know, consuming that value, traders using the platform, and it very meaningfully transferring value directly to the people who are contributing through the purchase of BSQ. Indeed, they're buying it from the people who earned it in the first place in that trading function. 
All right, so that will wrap it up for part one of our interview with Chris Beams from BISC. Please tune in next week, guys, for part two. We continue to go deeper on the BISC platform, the BSQ tokens, their incentives, decentralized governance, their DAO, and a bit more of the philosophy as well, uh, certainly and especially in light of the craziness that's going on with the Bitcoin price these days. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please like, subscribe, share. Really appreciate it and uh, take care.